Welcome back to uh, Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is Packy McCormick, who publishes a newsletter that at least those of you in the tech side may know called Not Boring, uh, which I can tell you having uh, read it a bunch of times, uh, it is accurately named. So, Packy, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bradley, and for the kind words. Yeah, sure. So, so you came up with this title that sort of definitionally grabs people's attention. Um, so for the people listening to this who don't know what Not Boring is, what is it? Sure. So Not Boring is a twice weekly newsletter about tech companies, big and small, and, and trends happening in the tech industry. So I'll write about anything from you know Alibaba and Tencent, the big kind of Chinese tech conglomerates, all the way down to this past week, I wrote about uh, NFTs and crypto and actually turned one of my old essays into an NFT itself. So it's really kind of the the broad spectrum of what's going on in tech uh, through the lens of companies big and small. Did, did you sell the NFT? I did. We sold it for 2.19 ETH, so like $4,700. All right. That's, that's not bad. Not bad. We actually, so the interesting thing about this one, because I think there's way too much NFT fever right now, but I think in the future, it'll be an interesting technology. The interesting thing about this one is that we split the proceeds from the sale with everybody who I linked to in the essay that I had sold. So the idea being- Oh, that, that's cool. You know, like so how much did each person get? So the most that somebody got was 8% um, and then all the way down to, to 1%. So somebody made uh, Lee Jin, who writes on the passion economy, was kind of the main source of inspiration for the piece that I that I auctioned off. So she got 8%, which ended up being around $400. I'm sure she was very happy to get that. Certainly. So, so NFTs, six months from now, they're still around? I think they're still around in some form or another in six months. I don't think we'll be seeing multi-million dollar art auctions as frequently in six months. But I do think that, you know, this example uh, that I was that I was trying to show so far away from kind of where I want, you know, the technology to be. And it's a very much a first experiment. But I think we'll see more and more and more experiments of NFTs trying to accomplish something as opposed to just being tied to art or a collectible. I think that's a really interesting use case as more and more things move online. Yeah, so give me the best case scenario of NFTs being societally useful. The best case scenario of NFTs being societally useful is, you know, say, you know, open source code, for example. If you tag your contribution with an NFT, which doesn't have to be art, doesn't have to be anything, it's just something that says this is kind of the unique version of this and it's owned by this person. Every time that piece of code gets built upon and used in another piece of code and that piece of code is used commercially maybe you get a small piece of money or in research papers if you contribute an idea and then somebody else in the future uses that idea and then that's commercialized you get a small piece and so i think the interesting thing to me from the creator side is can you build up this revenue stream that's based on the quality of your past work and its contribution into other things there's a book called who owns the future uh, by one of the the fathers of vr and the idea in that book is so much is going to be automated uh, and so much is going to be taken over at some point, whether that's in a decade or whether that's in five decades, taken over by AI. But that AI is being trained on all of the things that we're doing and building in some sense or another. Uh, and so if you can kind of tag the contributions that you're making all over the place and then have that you know, even just go into, you, know, you get your, your contribution to that model that then becomes the robo doctor that does all these surgeries and makes all this money for a company, you get your piece of, of your contribution there. I think that would be great. I hope it goes in that direction. Um, we will uh, we will see. Um, so so not boring. Uh, unlike all the other substacks that, that we know of, you don't charge a subscription fee. So 
uh, do you just have like a huge inheritance or like what's the, what's the plan here? Yeah, no, it was, it was fun making zero dollars and spending 60 to 70 hours a week writing for most of the last year. But in September, uh, I you know decided that I wanted to start monetizing this thing, the plan all along. So I'd, I've been writing it for about a year now, starting last April. Plan all along was get to 5,000 and then 10,000 people, and then I would turn on subscriptions. And I think I got a little bit addicted to the growth of it, which I think is is aided by keeping it free and open so that people can share. I'd say 95% of my growth comes from just word of mouth sharing. Uh, and so that gets blocked if I, you know, if I put up a paywall in front of my best stuff. So that's one piece. The other is it is pretty broad and I want it to be wide and I don't want somebody to convince their company to pay for the newsletter. And then I go off on a tangent and I'm selling NFTs and it doesn't actually apply to somebody's job. And so I think actually being sponsor-based gives me more freedom. Uh, but then yeah, in September, I turned on turned on sponsorships, which has been going really, really well. So I do a couple of different things. I do the traditional sponsorship that you're used to seeing at the top of a newsletter. I do deep dives, which I'm, I'm writing one tomorrow on a company called BlockFi, where the companies will pay me to write a deep dive on the company. So I'm, I think I'm 5,000 words into this draft on this company, BlockFi, but I'm only writing about companies that I would want to write about anyway. And luckily, you know, some of them are willing to pay for that, despite the fact that I would probably write about them anyway. So the two of right, those- they, they can just take their chances and hope you cover them, but uh, I guess they want to make sure they get it. Exactly. And so, I mean, the, the two of those combined have built up a business that, you know, unless- subscriptions went way better than anybody I've ever heard of. I think, you know, given my audience size and type of audience, uh, uh, sponsorships and ad revenue are, I think, doing, you know, two to three X what I think I would have been able to do uh, on subscriptions. That's why uh, you're not really a journalist. You're a, you're an entrepreneur. So, Packy, you know, and you and I obviously had some conversations about kind of your business model and your approach. It's clearly, I mean, do you even consider yourself a journalist? No. I want to be very, very, very clear that I am not a journalist because, you know, I wouldn't be able to write a sponsored post as a journalist and I want to take an opinion. I also invest in companies and so occasionally I'll write about those companies and I'm just clearly naturally very biased. So, yeah, there, I in no way am, am a journalist, maybe an analyst, but it's kind of an investor slash entrepreneur with a platform more than I would ever say journalist. So, so walk us through if you're comfortable with it, kind of what the plan is here, what you're building, because obviously it's the, the vision is is a lot more than, than a substack. Yeah. The vision is and is not a lot more than a substack, I would say. I mean, I, I think the you know the substack is kind of at the core of of everything that I'm doing. I have always said that uh, you know, if I was able to get very rich, very young and retire, I'd want to read and write and talk to smart people and the substack lets me do that. And so now that's up to forty three thousand people and it kind of enables a lot of uh, a lot of the other things that, that I want to do. But really, the next step on this thing is right now I'm running an angel investing syndicate um, as part of the newsletter where readers will invest in companies, will write up the companies. Uh, and there's this whole kind of virtuous virtuous cycle that happens where we find companies and investors through the newsletter and then invest in them and then tell their story. And that brings them employees and customers and all of that. So that's working really, really well. Um, and the next step will be you know to raise, raise a fund, uh, very, very small kind of early stage fund. Um, to go alongside of the SPV. So between the writing and the investing, that takes up, I think, 80 hours a week. So right now, that's what the empire, the not boring empire looks like is a Substack newsletter uh, and a little bit of investing. And then we'll see. The thing that I like the most about kind of being one person and, and having just this very loose structure is that there's all this optionality that I'm able to kind of take advantage of as things come up. 
without locking myself too much into any one future direction. So do, do, do the sort of this trend, or at least Andreessen's doing it, where they're kind of creating their own media company within the fund. Um, are there precedents you know of, of kind of media entities turning investors? And, you know, if not, how do, how do you think about kind of the strategic advantage of having this following to then help you make the case to LPs that you'll get deal flow and, and good opportunities? For sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a little bit of the track record uh, is just journalists at some point getting sick of being journalists and going in-house at a fund and either doing content for that fund or actually becoming uh, investors in the fund. And so I think that's the one side of the argument for LPs. It's not just about the audience, but it's really about the fact that you're used to thinking about companies really quickly and writing them up and uh, putting your thoughts out in the open for people to bash and show it just really sharpens uh, sharpens the knife, I think, pretty pretty quickly. Uh, and so on one side, I'd say that's that's part of it. The other is that... Um, you know, there's just this this big audience, and I think there's a trend more and more that people with big audiences are becoming investors. I think in some cases that's going to end really well. I think in some cases that's going to end really horribly. You know, there's plenty of you know TikTok stars out there right now who are doing deals where they're not willing to get involved with the company for less than five percent, and so that distribution better work out really, really, really well uh, yeah. because that's kind of the the value add that they bring, and so it kind of has to match the company pretty directly. But I think the interesting thing about Not Boring, about, you know, Harry Stebbings does it with uh, the 20 Minute VC and the fund that he runs. Austin Reef of The Morning Brew is doing it with a rolling fund. More and more individuals with kind of the right mix of content and audience are doing it. And I think those can work pretty well. So so you've got this disintermediation of media. And if you take kind of people, like you just said, kind of doing Substacks and that leading to investments, or just the fact that influencers on TikTok and Instagram, you know, often have significantly b- bigger followings than like you know the Chicago Tribune or whatever it is. Um, wh- where does that take us? I mean, do we need uh, kind of a centralized media, or just as kind of currencies being decentralized and healthcare is being decentralized, could media just basically be kind of these tiny small businesses and and not these big institutions? I think there's certainly value in the institutions. I mean, I, I think where it'll end up is like a lot of other things where, you know, the, the top tier institutions will survive and thrive. And obviously the Times is doing very, very well. The middle will be hollowed out. And then there's going to be this long tail of, of individuals at the bottom. But I don't think the Times is going anywhere soon. I don't think the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal or any of them are going anywhere soon. You know, a lot of my source material comes from those kind of central, uh, you know, like actual journalists, as opposed to what I'm doing, which is which is taking all of those sources and doing more analysis. So I think there's certainly a place uh, for the top tier institutions. But as with universities and media and venture funds and everything, I think the middle uh, gets hollowed out pretty quickly. So we're recording this on uh, on Wednesday, and today is also known as Coinbase IPO Day. Um, what do you think? I mean, all, I'm sure it's been happening to you also all day. People and we're in Coinbase keep asking me, "Do I hold? Do I sell?" And you know, uh, I give whatever advice I can, but I'm, you know, I'm, I know about private investments, not not public equities. Um, what do you think? Does this does this reach a hundred billion dollars? Should it reach a hundred billion dollars? I think it does reach a hundred billion dollars. I think uh, should should is a tough one here. They they're generating so much revenue and so much profit 
at a relatively young age still. They have the Bitcoin trend behind them. We'll see if we're in you know a super cycle that outlasts kind of the traditional cycles that we've seen uh, in crypto, where it's you know these, these kind of four year cycles. Um, so we'll see what the the tailwinds do to them. I, I think it's a really interesting uh, it's a really interesting investment to look at because it's not ARR and it's not obvious that that it's going to grow. I think you know to the extent that Bitcoin cools off, there's less transaction volume. I think that as a company, you know they charge they make a lot of their money from charging retail investors three to four percent on trades. That works when you're really the only safe option that people trust. I think that that fee is going to compress in a pretty big way. So the question is, can they add on other services, become a bank, become a platform, maybe let equities trading on the platform, add all these other things on with this wedge that they've built through uh, through the crypto exchange before their fees get compressed and they're pretty low margin, potentially still high, high volume business. So, so switching gears a little bit, you have a real estate background. You, you, you were involved in, in Breather kind of and... Um, you're also originally a New York City guy. Um, let me give you my doomsday scenario for New York, and I think the listeners are probably hear, tired of hearing me uh, complain about this. And then uh, you, you tell me whether you agree or not. So, all right. So, so here, here's my great concern of uh, as a New Yorker and someone who's kind of evolved, involved in New York City government and politics, which is um, second half of the 20th century, Cities like Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore were doomed the minute that manufacturers realized that they could make the same product in Taiwan or Mexico or wherever for 25 cents on the dollar. Once that aha moment happened, once the light bulb went off, even if it took a couple of decades for these cities to hollow out, th- there was never any chance that, that, that they'd be able to survive it in a meaningful way. New York City avoided that because even though we did lose a lot of manufacturing jobs as well, We've always been the white collar capital of the U.S., if not the entire world. And there's always been this sort of thesis of um, you've got to have a if you're a big company, you got to be able to do business in New York. And you have to have a big office in New York, whether it's a headquarters or significant presence. And that just created, you know, literally a couple million jobs. Um, and my fear is that in COVID, that same aha moment happened where employers said, you know what, this Zoom thing works pretty well. Uh, my people are pretty productive, even when they're not in the office. Not only do I not have to be in New York, I don't actually have to be anywhere. Um, and I don't think that it has to lead to, you know, mass defections of companies to Florida or Texas. It just has to mean that, that people tell their employees, you know, like, come in when you need to, uh, stay home when you need to. And just like I think about our office, where it's going to go from everyone being there every day to a lot of conference rooms and desks that anyone can grab when they need to be there. We're going to have, you know, 40 percent, probably less physical traffic in the office each day, which means if you're the coffee shop downstairs or the deli across the street or or the building in terms of the staffing they need to operate and everything else, everyone takes a hit. Right. Just because there's a lot less activity and revenue. Um, And I think that really, really just becomes a downward spiral. So given your own experience kind of in, in New York real estate and real estate in general, um, am I right, or or do you have a more optimistic take? Oh man, I'm I'm normally the optimist on everything, but I'm I'm optimistic about kind of the future of, of hybrid work. I mean, I, I've I've always worked in an office and have loved, uh, you know, by, being by myself, being able to work from wherever I want. I think you're right. There's not going to be a mass defection. I cannot wait to get back to the city, even though there's no reason that I need to be there from a work perspective. Um, 
I think that, you know, the law firms and the banks and the hedge funds are going to go back to the office. And so, you know, class A midtown stuff is probably fine. Maybe they spread out into more, more fun neighborhoods because they can, and they're not competing with, with WeWork as much and with the startups as much anymore as they shed office space. I think new companies will probably move into New York, all of that. So maybe there's some demand backfill, but yeah, I think it's not going to be as good ever again as it has been for office landlords in New York. I do think, you know, people will need to figure out creative things to do with space and to do with, with the city generally. Cause I think people as much as ever want to live in, in New York city. I've talked to a bunch of friends who thought they would never move to New York who are now actually really interested in moving to New York. So people are not going to want to be stuck in small New York city apartments all day. There's going to be opportunities maybe for more flexible work, more co-working, more Soho house type kind of spaces that are a little bit of fun and a little bit of work. Um, so I, I think hopefully we can get creative and find new ways to take down a lot of space, but there's nothing for the landlords like, you know, the corporate corporate checkbook writing a big monthly rent check every month, no, ma no matter how much kind of individual demand there is for creative type spaces, that's never going to kind of backfill. So maybe if there are corporate budgets that people can use on their individual workspace and flexible office, that, that can stem some of the damage, but I don't think it's going to be quite as good as, as it's been for landlords for a very, very, very long time. But not to mention the fact that this comes on the heels of just incredible expansion and overspending by WeWork, Notel, and the like, just sucking up any good piece of real estate, and, and breather, frankly, any good piece of real estate in, in lower Manhattan. Uh, and so the fact that that's kind of dropped off, plus the fact that, that COVID hit, is going to be a pretty big double whammy for New York landlords. Yeah, although in a way, I mean, Breather might have been a little too early for, for its time, but, you know, everything you just described kind of does make the case for a really flexible office environment. And maybe it's even more flexible than what we work offers, which is just people, when they need a space for a meeting, uh, they grab one, and when they don't, they don't, and, and nothing has to be permanent. Um, do you guys, do you feel like you guys were ahead of your time and, uh, is this kind of a moment where things take off? Yeah, I think Breather started today with all of the lessons that we learned and a clean cap table and, 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 and would do really, really well. I mean, I think ultimately where we got the vision uh, of Breather was this hub and spoke model where you had a smaller kind of central office that people could pop into when it made sense. And then a bunch of purpose-built spaces that do all sorts of things. So maybe your marketing team goes offsite for a room that's designed for brainstorming one day, or your finance team goes somewhere that's you know dark and has a bunch of cubicles in it and they get the month closed out. Or you have really big, beautiful spaces to meet with clients and, and show off that you're a legitimate company with a presence in New York City. And so I think this idea of a hub that that people can kind of come into and, and feel like a team combined with all these folks that do a bunch of different things makes a ton of sense. And I would not be surprised whether it's WeWork uh, or some, some new company would not be surprised to see them do it. The other huge advantage right now is that Landlords were feeling really, really good for the past, you know, five to 10 years. And so we're unwilling to get creative on terms. And that meant that everybody was paying for a five, 10 year lease, you know, paying for a bunch of the construction themselves, et cetera. I think landlords are going to be a little more flexible uh, on terms, which will give new companies a little bit more room to wiggle and experiment on new ideas. Yeah. When, when you were at, at Breather and in, in that sector and, and watching WeWork, were, did, did all the revelations that came out about Adam and WeWork later surprise you? Or did you feel like, oh, yeah, that was super obvious if, if, if you knew that world? 
Yeah, it was pretty obvious, you know, just talking to people who who worked closely with him that he was no hard charging at the at the very least and wrote a piece recently on WeWork and and mentioned like I had a friend who, you know, was one level kind of below the exec team there and would get called into meetings at 11 p.m. midnight and Adam would say, "Hey, person, your boss just gave me this number. I think that's wrong. Tell me why your boss is wrong. And just like do these things that just showed that he had kind of this weird power dynamic that he was playing with people. So from that perspective, sure. Uh, from the business perspective, it was insane to compete against WeWork for the past few years before the, the IPO debacle. And it was you know partially WeWork's fault and I think very, very much uh, Notel's fault. So now Notel came in and kind of said, you know, they, they really poked WeWork in the eye. They would put buses outside of WeWork's office and goad them on and then go sign these leases on which we knew that no one could ever make a dollar of, of gross margin through the life of that deal. It was really just this race to accumulate as much space as possible because these companies were getting valued kind of like they were SaaS companies. So every dollar of top line, despite the fact that top line came with a bunch of costs below that, every dollar of top line was being valued at at least 10x, which is insane for, for a real estate company. And so there was just this rapid, rapid expansion. So WeWork alone was a little bit dangerous. WeWork plus Notel competing for a bunch of spaces was really, really dangerous. And I, I can't imagine what percent of deals that those two companies signed in New York in the past in the kind of last year before the IPO ever had a shot of being profitable. What other industries do you look at and say, they're getting these huge kind of multiples and they're kind of positioning themselves as tech companies, but in reality, they're just like this sort of old line industry and the business is just it will never justify that kind of valuation. Real estate was the most obvious. There's, you know, the whole the whole portion of Masa's uh, vision fund portfolio that had anything to do with with real estate. So whether that was, you know, Katera on the construction side, uh, Ola on the hotel side, like all of that stuff, I think, you know, probably not going to do uh, do as well as he had hoped, and and already some of that is is starting to show. I think obviously food delivery is a really interesting one. Can you get to the Meituan Dianping kind of holy grail where you win the market and um, become a huge profitable company that, that can then add on all sorts of other services? I think it's going to be really, really, really competitive. And there's there's obviously uh, some well-funded competitors with deep pockets in the space and new companies coming in trying to pick off the most profitable pieces of what the food delivery businesses do. So, I mean, I guess if there's one that I thought most money would has the potential to evaporate in, I would say it's probably the food delivery space. Yeah, I think that's right. I also just ultimately feel like uh, they're just never going to be able to, in a kind of independent contractor model, um, be able to get enough market share uh, to really make it really profitable, right? Just because it's, you know, everybody's working for everybody and it just, it's so easy to enter the space and um, so it seems, I totally agree. It seems, seems super hard. Um, how do you decide what to write about? You seem to pretty consistently come up with interesting stuff to talk about, but like, is there a kind of standard you use that kind of the, the not boring standard to know that it's not boring or like, how do you, how do you decide? There is, there is no process almost, you know, I'll spend a lot of time online and read a bunch of things. I kind of see what's happening. Uh, what people are talking about at any given time. And sometimes I can just find the thing that I really, really want to write about that happens to be you know, in the news that week. And so that works out really well. And sometimes there's just things that I've been interested in for a while that I decide it's finally time, time to write about. So this upcoming week, writing about a Chinese tech company 
with someone who lives in China and covers tech there. We're going to do a little bull and bear on a Chinese tech company. The next week, I have no idea what I'm going to be writing about. Um, so it's really come up with something for Monday on Thursday afternoon, start writing it, start taking notes, read as much as I can. It's a messy process. And then a couple hours in, I'll be able to tell if there's some new angle on that story that hasn't been told or not. And then I'll throw it out and start over again and kind of keep going. So it's really just a lot of banging my head against the wall until I find something that I think might work. So you as, as kind of an influencer, um, obviously have lots of different social media tools uh, to work with. I'm, I'm going to, I'll name a, a social media platform of some kind. Um, and you tell me whether or not it's actually useful to you. Sure. Um, Facebook. No. Why not? I try to not spend any time on Facebook and it's nothing to do with, you know, ethics or, you know, I think they're big, bad and stealing your data. And it's more to do with the fact that their product is clearly just a zombie based on 10 years of A-B testing. I don't know the last time you've signed into Facebook.com, but it's no, a uh, never. Actually, yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. nightmare in there. So I think I've posted maybe one thing uh, from not boring in there, but because I haven't been on the platform for the past 10 years, I got no traction on it. And so I, that was nice because that means I get to spend no time on there again. And what about Instagram then? I don't use Instagram all that often. Um, I certainly don't use it for, for the business at all. Um, you know, I don't look that good with my shirt off, uh, unlike unlike Scott Galloway or or Chamath. Um, Post it, and we'll let our listeners that we can vote on how how good you look. I, I want you to retain some listeners, so I, I'm not. Scott do looked that. pretty good, by the way. You know, I was. He didn't I look bad. I, I don't look that good, and I'm younger than him, or nearly that. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, Clubhouse. Uh, I am very long Twitter Spaces versus Clubhouse. I just like the idea of having everything kind of in one in one place. So is, is Twitter your most useful platform? Twitter is you know ninety percent of it. Twitter is by far the most useful platform for me. And so it seems like with Twitter, there's a sort of Faustian bargain, which is it's easy to see why and how it's useful to you, um, and, and how it is uh, a, a product that makes sense for a lot of people, and yet. I don't know of anyone that spends a lot of time on Twitter that doesn't think their life is worse for isn't worse. For <laughs> so what do we do societally when the same platforms that we rely on so much are places that just make us unhappy? I don't know. I, I think it's maybe because I'm so optimistic. I, I have a completely different experience on Twitter. I put I tweet a fair amount. I have, you know, 30,000 or so followers. It's my stuff is public enough that I I feel like I should have run into a lot more trolls and bad people. And I just really haven't had very many negative interactions on the platform. So some of it might just be a little bit of like kind of what you put out there and what you're looking to find on the platform. I've made a bunch of, you know, a bunch of friends, which is like a cheesy way of saying it, but then a bunch of people who I work with on pieces together, I've co-invested with, I might do new projects with. Uh, and so just people I think who've, who've really helped not boring in a pretty big way. And you know, a lot of that certainly comes from the fact that we were all stuck inside, spending more time on Twitter than usual during during the pandemic. But overall, I found it to be, you know, very very positive, uh, and has not made me unhappy. Obviously, it's a little bit addicting, and I wish I spent a little less time on there. It's dangerous when I can justify spending time on Twitter as part of my job. But for the most part, you know, I I, I view it as a really positive place. In terms of, I think I'm getting told towards the last question here, but like. Given that you've now been writing about stuff for, for a year or so, thinking about stuff, investing, and we've had this pandemic that has changed a whole bunch of social norms, as you're thinking about where you want to deploy capital, um, what are the kind of sectors and types of companies you're excited about? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I know there's 
I, the things that I see the most are creator economy tools. And so that takes a lot for me to get excited about. I think big, big things are happening and it's really hard to figure out which tools, uh, which tools are going to make the most sense. I love uh, API first companies still, if they are, you know, they can find a pain that is big enough for companies that they're willing to, to plug something in and just forget about it. Um, so whenever I see an API first company all about it, I think, you know, fintech probably, but the investing piece is getting really, really crowded and competitive. And I think that's going to be a fun one to see where, where it plays out. I think, you know, Robinhood is a great kind of entryway for people to come into the market and start trading. But I think more social and more sophisticated tools on the investing side are going to come into play and, and tools that frankly combine all of the different asset classes that people are now trading in one place. I think nobody has any idea of the overall risk of their portfolio right now. And so I think things that bring that together are going to be really, really interesting. Um, you know, vertical talent marketplaces as we go more remote, I think people are going to be more and more willing to work kind of fractionally. So vertical talent marketplaces and just remote work tools in general. Um, Cause you know, as we talked about in the New York city bear case, I do think that hybrid is going to be a bigger and bigger piece of the pie going forward. So those are a few of the, the areas. All right. Last question. How, how do people find you? How do they find not boring? Um, yeah, obviously I think people listening to this are hopefully intrigued by it. Um, what can they do to learn more? Sure. So you can go to notboring.co, notboring.co, or at Packy M, P-A-C-K-Y-M on Twitter. Cool. All right. Packy McCormick, thanks for joining us. Bradley, thanks for having me.